Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another video. Today, I'm here with Dan Norton um, with his channel with, I think it's titled with his name, or is it The Selfishness Product? Um, but yeah, do you want to introduce yourself to everybody? Sure. So I'm Dan Norton, and as Garrett just said, I have a channel on YouTube as well as a website called The Selfishness Project, where I explore the idea of selfishness from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy, and I have conversations with people as a way to do that exploration. Uh, before I started my channel, I was in graduate school for philosophy, just finished my PhD a few months ago, and uh, got a master's in philosophy before that, bachelor's in philosophy before that. I was in the Objectivist Academic Center for several years in their uh, undergraduate and graduate programs. I worked at ARI for a few years as well. And I think, so I just did a kind of reverse chronological history for you. Uh, so there's my uh, last, I don't know how many years in a nutshell. Yeah, interesting. And then I actually found out about you uh, after I recorded my uh, life and happiness video. And then you commented under there basically asking some questions about it, um, challenging, challenging me a little bit on some of the statements that I made. Um, and yeah, I thought, I thought it would be good to have you come on rather than just like continuing like a whole essay back and forth and like actually getting to the root of these issues. Because I noticed that a lot of times in internet comment sections, it's like this sort of just talking past each other sometimes or it's just walls of texts back and forth. And it's like, that, it usually doesn't end up being as productive as a face-to-face -face conversation. So then I guess I just uh, reached out to you via email and here we are talking about this now. Um, I guess, should I lay out my position first or yeah, I'll probably do that. Um, so I guess my essential position um, on this issue would be, um, so fundamentally the foundations of Rand's ethics would be uh, this whole question of, or it's, it starts with the whole like question of why do we need ethics? And then for a living organism, you have the fundamental alternative of life or death. And Rand's ethics sort of goes, goes after you or continues after you choose life. And then the question comes, what are your requirements for life? Um, and then you ba base your values off of that. So I guess the question for me has always, that has kind of gone in my mind is how do we choose, why do we choose life instead of death? What, what is the reason for that? And my, I guess my goal with making that video is to sort of explain that and make it so that it's not an arbitrary choice. Because if that's an arbitrary choice, sort of the foundation of Rand's ethics would be arbitrary. And that's something that I want to avoid. Yeah, the uh, first, let me just say that I think this is a tricky issue. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's been a lot written about it. Over the last few days, I was reading several articles and chapters about this very issue of the, the fundamental choice in ethics to live or not. And how, how exactly should we understand that choice? Is it an arbitrary choice? Is it subjective? And it's only um, after you've made a certain choice that we can say it, it's uh, objectively right to pursue one thing rather than the other, but the primary choice itself is, um, is not something you can criticize someone for. It's, it's only after you've made that primary choice that it makes sense to then offer criticisms of what someone might go on to choose to do, but the primary choice itself, since it is primary, um, does it really make sense to uh, say you 
should do one rather than the, than the other. On what basis um, mm. would you decide that? Isn't the whole idea of getting a basis for evaluating choices, does it, the whole idea of having a basis at all already presuppose that you've made a choice one way on that fundamental choice? Mm -hmm. And um, I think there are, there are differences of opinion in the objectivist literature or the secondary literature. And um, like Alan Gotthell, for instance, he has, uh, just looking at, uh, he has a piece that came out in 1990 responding to Douglas Rasmussen at a Ayn Rand's society meeting. Um, this is a group associated with the American Philosophical mm -hmm. Association and Douglas Rasmussen had been arguing for a certain uh, position on this issue of, you know, is there an obligation, a moral obligation to make the primary choice to live? And I think he was arguing that there was, and Alan was arguing that there was not. But then Alan changed his views over the years, and uh, his view is now more in line with a position that Daryl Wright holds and the, the first essay in this book the the Ayn Rand studies philosophical series uh has put out a series of books the first one of which is on ethics and the lead essay in this book is is an essay by Daryl Wright on this very issue how to understand the primary choice whether is there some kind of moral obligation and uh Alan has said that his his view is now more in line with Daryl's um, and there, there's been other discussions as well, but that's some of what I've been reading over the last few days. And maybe we can get into some of the, you know, bring in some of their ideas insofar as I understand them. Um, but it is a tricky issue. And I, I don't claim mm -hmm. myself to have it all perfectly worked out. My thinking has been evolving over the last mm -hmm. few days in particular, as I've been reading through some of this literature. But, you know, hopefully together we can make some progress in trying to get a better handle on this issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. This is definitely a very tricky issue in Rand's ethics. And it's definitely not, it's something that it's not necessarily something that she like fully seemed to work out in her, in her ethics. She might, I, um, yeah, she didn't seem to like fully work out why we make that choice to live or if it's like exactly a choice that we need to make or need to have a basis for. And I guess fundamentally, I think that it is a choice that we do need to have a basis for because I think we can inductively see that life is good, that there are good things in life. And because of that, because life is good, because of the good things that we can achieve during life, we can say that that choice to live is not an arbitrary choice and it ultimately would be a good choice to make. Um, that's, that's a sort of essentialized summary of my position from my thinking on this issue, I guess. And I, what, what, what specifically would be those positions that they talked about in those essays? Because I'm not familiar with those essays that you talked about. Uh, what are their positions? Well, I, so I, I'm not super familiar with their positions. I mean, I've read through the, the essays at least once, uh, but there's, there's a lot there to think over. Mm -hmm. But it, to take Daryl Wright's position as I understand it, he says that there is grounds for making the primary choice to live, but mm -hmm. he, what he calls it is a non-deliberative grounds. So I think maybe what that means is there's not like an explicit 
reason, uh, some thought in your mind in, ter in terms of propositional content, he uses that phrase, like explicit words, like I should live because uh, if I do so, then I have a shot at being happy. Like mm -hmm. those words that I just uttered would not be in someone's mind as they're making the choice to live. But there's something yeah. implicit that corresponds to those words. I don't know if you would want to just call that a feeling, but yeah. or a sense that somebody has. Mm -hmm. um, but there is something, a non-deliberative grounds. So maybe another way of putting that is an implicit grounds mm -hmm. um, for making the choice one way. Uh, and that's what grounds uh, the choice to live. And that's what makes it rational to condemn someone who uh, chooses otherwise. Like James Taggart is an example mm -hmm. that he gives of someone who, who doesn't choose to live. So I yeah. guess the idea is that James Taggart is, he, he has access to this implicit non-deliberative uh, grounds for choosing to live yet he doesn't mm -hmm. act accordingly. He doesn't uh, go after that. Um, yeah. So that, that's at least part of Wright's view, Daryl Wright's view. I don't know if, if it's right to characterize that as an intrinsic reason to live. Um, like, if there, is there something just intrinsically uh, attractive about um, these non-deliberative grounds uh, hmm. that makes it rational to choose those grounds now of course ayn rand she she distances herself from an intrinsicist position um nothing is good in itself it's always good to an agent for some purpose mm -hmm. um so in some sense her view is not intrinsic but i i've wondered you know at least if daryl wright's interpretation of it is correct is there some sense in which there is something that it's intrinsically appealing and it gives us grounds, um, gives us reason to pursue it just in itself. Um, so that's, that's at least a little bit of Daryl Wright's view on this issue, as I understand it. And it seems like Alan Gotthelf, he, he passed away, but um, I guess by the time uh, the Companion to Ayn Rand came out, this uh, volume co-edited with uh, Gregory Salmieri, he, he says there, uh, in a in a footnote, I think um, that he his his current view then, I guess this would have been of as of 2013 was more in line with Daryl Wright's view. Uh, there was another piece I came across recently by a guy named uh, Ole Martin Moen from Norway, Norwegian philosopher, uh, <clears throat> who has been influenced by objectivism. Uh, he has a piece in Reason Papers, which is free online, um, where he argues that, that happiness is the ultimate value rather than life. Um, he doesn't hmm. engage with Daryl Wright's piece much uh, directly, although he does cite it, so he's at least aware of it. But so his position is that it makes more, more sense for happiness to be the ultimate value uh, not necessarily the ultimate standard, but the ultimate value. And mm -hmm. uh, then David Kelly has a response piece to that also in recent papers, uh, a few years after that in 
So Mullen's piece was 2012 and then Kelly's response was 2015, arguing that um, actually life is properly regarded as the ultimate value, but then happiness should, it's, it's not as um, distinct from life as Moen was making it out to be. And if you do make life and happiness yeah. out to be distinct in the way that Moen was, then I guess there's more reason to uh, go with Moen and say happiness is the ultimate value. But if you see them as more integrated, maybe if you see happiness as an aspect of, of life or a, of man's life, qua man, then it makes more sense to uh, think of life as the ultimate value. Mm -hmm. So th yeah, that's a so I guess their views. Yeah, I guess I guess with my my position on this, thinking about this, um, is just generally that like, yeah, life and happiness are necessarily integrated, and that happiness is sort of the reward for achieving life. So, and that's sort of why we ultimately choose to live because of that potential for happiness in life. Because if we live, we're going to be rewarded by happiness, and happiness is sort of this is sort of this I guess state of non-contradictory joy it's like there's you can't say that happiness is bad but there's a sense in which you can say that um like if let's look like there's a sense in which you can say that living is bad if it doesn't bring you happiness there's there's a sense in which you can say that because like if you're in a concentration camp for example um like you there's no obligation to live there's no duty to live i would say that there's senses there's a sense in which that life wouldn't be the right choice to make in that sense yeah, I mean, there's also a way you could look at it as a tragic affirmation of the choice to live, um, to the choice to live qua man. So mm -hmm. um, in the concentration camp, being able to live qua man, that's qua rational being who mm -hmm. pursues this long run integrated kind of existence full of values like productive work yeah. and happiness, that's not an option that's on the table if you're in a concentration camp. So it's, it's, uh, I don't know if it's right to say you're choosing not to live or it's just that choosing to live is no longer an option in the sense that Rand yeah. means it as a value. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. So yeah. So like Rand integrates life with happiness here, like life and happiness are sort of necessarily connected or life and your values, like in sort of thinking about whether or not to like metaphysically live or metaphysically die, you're choosing, you're basically saying that, oh, life is where I can achieve my values. And these values are based off of like the pleasure that they bring and ultimately the happiness that they bring if they're consistent with your life. Um, if that, or what, I guess what sort of is your take on that? Cause I, we might have some disagreements here. Cause I know you had some disagreements with that formulation in that, in my video. Uh, yeah, I, I think one one place where I, I wasn't sure that uh, I would agree with the formulation was, I mean, whenever you say um, we should choose to live or we mm. ought to choose to live or we must choose to live, any of those kinds of formulations, mm. I, I wonder if they're coherent because life is what gives rise to shoulds and oughts and musts there's no um independent st standard um by reference to which we should or must or ought to pursue life itself at least in certain moods that's that's what i 
think makes sense. So there's there's a kind of incoherence to saying that we should choose to live. Because my question then is, by what standard? Um, are you going to say by the standard of, of life? Okay, but we haven't chosen life yet. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's, I mean, this I could be misunderstanding Rand's view, but I'm not sure. But I mean, she does say things like all all uh, musts are conditional. There are no categorical mm -hmm. imperatives. There are only hypothetical imperatives. So you must do whatever if you want to mm -hmm. achieve some end. But there's yeah. no just you must full stop. Period. Um, mm -hmm. Now, so, so if we apply that idea to the choice to live itself if we're going to say um you should or you must or you ought to choose to live well if what uh how are we going to fill that in um in a way that's consistent with her view that all musts or shoulds or oughts are conditional so I, here's a question um you must choose to live if fill in the blank. Hmm. What are you going to fill in that blank with? Yeah. She says you, huh. you, so I you guess, work. I guess it's almost, I, I guess it's almost a question of like, should you choose to adopt a morality? That's kind of, that's kind of a broader thing, broader sense in which this applies. Should you choose, should you choose to sort of like adopt a sort of guiding principle or a guiding system to your life or should you live? Um, and I guess the whole reason for that, the whole purpose of having a moral system is to achieve happiness. That's what Rand says in the virtue of selfishness. I actually looked up a bunch of quotes, um, last night to find this. And it's like, she, she explains that life is the standard and then happiness is sort of the purpose of ethics, but it, happiness can't be the standard. Happiness cannot be a standard because if you take happiness alone as a standard, then then you ultimately are led to hedonism because what what do you base your happiness on what standard do you base your happiness on and yeah be, and when yeah basically when you don't do that like it's just pleasure for the sake of pleasure and it's not based on life it's not based on what's actually going to lead you to more sort of happiness in the future more life in the future i guess i might be misinterpreting man's rand's quote here but i guess i could i have a copy where i underlined a bunch of stuff if we want to like look at it yeah, I just got out my copy too. Yeah, she mm -hmm. does definitely draw a distinction between the standard and the purpose. But it's, I find, I find that, uh, I mean, there's some interpretive challenges here because she does say, and maybe most of the time says that life is the standard or man's life is the standard and happiness is the purpose. But she also mm -hmm. says, at least in one place, that life is also the purpose, not happiness, but life. So uh, mm. this is, um, looks like paragraph 58 of the objective is ethics. What page and is that on? It's, uh, I guess, a little over halfway through that she says the objective is ethics holds man's life as the standard of value and his own life as the ethical purpose of every mm. individual man. So there, she's not saying happiness is the purpose. 
she's saying mm-hmm. his own life is the purpose. Yet, uh, elsewhere, she does say happiness is the purpose. Mm-hmm. Like on uh, paragraph 67, she says, to live for his own sake means that the achievement of his own happiness is man's highest moral purpose. Yeah. So, I mean, how do we integrate these two things? Maybe uh, mm-hmm. the idea is that happiness is like the psychological angle on life. So existentially, um, so here's, here's skipping ahead a bit. Uh, she says the maintenance, of, the maintenance of life and the pursuit of happiness are not two separate issues. To hold mm-hmm. one's own life as one's ultimate value and one's own happiness as one's highest purpose are two aspects of the same achievement. Existentially, the activity of pursuing rational goals is the activity of maintaining one's life. Psychologically, its results, reward, and concomitance is an emotional state of happiness. It is by experiencing happiness that one lives one's life in any hour, year, or the whole of it. Um, And then she goes on. So maybe you can think of both life and happiness can be understood as the purpose Mm -hmm. of life, but one is the purpose considered from an existential point of view and the other happiness is the purpose Mm -hmm. considered from a psychological point of view. So maybe that's a way to integrate those Mm -hmm. two. Yeah. So sort of like, I guess a way to formulate this that I'm kind of thinking of right now, like to exist, we need to maintain our own life. If we want to continue existing, you need to maintain your own life. Existentially, you need to maintain your own life. Um, And psychologically, like we do that for it, or we kind of live for a psychology of happiness that like that's that's not a very clear formulation i get i guess but it's sort of the first quick explanation that comes to my mind i don't know when when i try to learn stuff and try to integrate stuff i like to just get out a quick formulation and then develop it from there so if i'm i'm sure you have criticisms of that formulation but uh i'm not sure um if you want to run it by me again maybe i can uh yeah so i guess sort of um like, okay, so existentially, we say, I'll, I'll repeat the quote, I guess. Existentially, the activity of pursuing rational goals is the activity of maintaining one's life. So, like, sort of, when I think of the word existentially, it's like, okay, in order to exist, like, we need to maintain and pursue our own our own life. That might be a misrepresentation of the quote, but that's part of what I get out of the word, like, existentially. Um, and then psychologically, like, we do it for a psychological state, this reward of happiness. That's why we pursue our life so that we can get this reward of happiness like we do we achieve we continue existing we continue living for a reward of life um i think maybe the the distinction here is like the inner and the outer perspective Mm. so often you she contrasts uh mind and body or um spirit and matter, that, that kind of idea, uh, psychologically and existentially. So I think maybe that's the idea here that existentially, like from a kind of outside perspective, um, man's life consists in pursuing rational goals. Mm-hmm. And then psychologically, the internal sort of perspective is that you're pursuing this happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that's that's one way you might try to relate. What, what is the relation of the existential and the psychological? Basically, that means the outer and the inner. Another way you might think of it, which I, I don't know if this is correct, but you might think of the psychological as an aspect of the existential. If you think of existence as like everything, and then, mm -hmm. well, uh, psychology is an aspect or a part of everything. So um, you might also think of this as a part-whole relationship rather than an inner-outer kind of relationship um, or an aspect. Mm -hmm. And in, I don't know what exists is not actually not an entity, at least not in the normal sense of like, you know, mm -hmm. a rock. Yeah. But, um, so, yeah, I think it's, um, I'm not exactly sure how to understand the kind of relationship she has in mind between existential and psychological. I think mm -hmm. maybe the first, the first I proposed, the inner versus the outer perspective, maybe that's the most plausible kind of distinction she's trying to yeah. get at here. Hmm. Oh yeah, that, that actually makes, I thought that mind-body formulation was a good one because it sort of ties into the whole idea of like how how we integrate mind and body as objectivists like that's a that's an important principle um and like you need to have both of these to have a to live qua man to like live qua man you need both life and happiness and like there's a sense in which it's similar to like the existence consciousness sort of, sort of thing as well because like if you want to achieve happiness you need to live like if you're dead you can't be happy and to live qua man, to live as a human being, you live a happy life. That's part of what it means to live qua man, is to live and be happy. So like, there's a sense in which these two things are integrated together in a similar way to how we integrate mind and body. Yeah, although, as you were just talking there, I thought, well, it's not quite like that because mind and body are, are not... I mean, this gets into the philosophy of mind, which is actually what I, uh, the area I, I focused on in my graduate school uh, career. Um, so there's this view of dualism, which is the idea that mind and body are distinct in some way. There's different kinds of dualism. There's what's called substance dualism. There's property dualism. And, uh, <clears throat> but in any case, um, I think, Rand is plausibly interpreted as some kind of dualist when it comes to mind and body, but mm. I'm not sure she's a dualist when it comes to life and happiness in, in a similar kind of way. I think it might be that, uh, as you were saying towards the end there, that happiness is part of, of, of life or an aspect mm -hmm. of life, but I don't yes. think she would say that the mind is a, is a part of the body or an aspect of the body um, I mean, there's at least I'm not sure she would say that she might think mm -hmm. that both are um, aspects of man, like man is an entity. And then he has these two mm -hmm. aspects, his physical aspect and his mental aspect, um, or his material part and his mental part, if you want to put it in terms mm -hmm. of parts. But I think that's, I suspect that that might be a different kind of relationship than between life and happiness. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm not sure the analogy quite yeah. works, the mind and body. Um, maybe it works in some ways, but not others. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, I mean, a lot, of, that's how a lot of analogies generally tend to be. And it's you like, usually when you try to like ex overextend an analogy, that's when you end up falling into, or when one, one tries to overextend an analogy, that's when they fall into rationalism. Um, that's, 
often. Yeah, often I mean, if it, was a, case. if it was a perfect analogy, it wouldn't really be an analogy. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, for sure. I was thinking on the very point that we were using the analogy for, though, um, mm-hmm. it, it might not work. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but but I'm not I'm not sure about that. Yeah. So, huh. so um, I mean, what? So what? You you were saying you liked the mind body analogy, and then I was. So I guess you could, from what perspective did you like it? Because um, there's there's a sense in which like, like part of Rand's philosophy is like integrating mind and body. That's like we want to, we can't like separate mind and body like like with the like with the rationalists and empiricists do we integrate them together? Like they're two aspects of a sort of whole, which is man, and that's that's sort of the same thing with like life and happiness. Like life is sort of this existential requirement. And we need to, so like we need to live to be happy, but we also need happiness as a sort of motivator to get us to choose to live. So they're sort of integrated in that sense. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're definitely integrated, but it's, it's, it's the way in which they're integrated that I think uh, there's some kind of difference between mind and body on the one hand and life and happiness on the other. Um, so I, I don't know if it's it's worth trying to pin down exactly what the difference is in the way they're integrated, but I, I suspect there is some kind of difference. Yeah, most likely, yeah. I don't know, I, I, just, thought, I just thought it might be like sort of a useful analogy to think about. Like, cause one, one thing that I think is really important in Rand's ethics is trying to integrate mind or trying to integrate life and happiness rather than like sort of separating them out because when you when you do separate them out you get to this weird question of like which is which comes first which is the primary or should you pursue life at the expense of happiness or should you pursue happiness at the expense of life and those are incoherent questions because happiness is a reward for living as a human being and achieving your values that are in accordance with your life so you can't really separate life and happiness and I guess more of what I'm trying to do is sort of pin down what specifically is that relationship. And I guess from, I guess that's what my video was about. And sort of how I do it is I think of like, why fundamentally did I, like, why am I living? Why don't I like, I guess not to, not to be morbid, like, why don't I just not live anymore? Why don't I just end my life? Well then immediately this, there's like a, flood of concretes that come into my mind of like oh friends family um career uh my youtube channel all all these things that i love all these values that come to my mind and it's sort of i guess there's a sort of thing of like i want to live so that i can achieve these values and achieve the happiness that comes with these values and that's i think that's the sense in which happiness is sort of the answer to this question of why do i choose to live in this fundamental alternative it's sort of explains why happiness is sort of this purpose of morality um when you think about it from that perspective yeah uh i i think there i mean this was coming up some in the comment thread that we we were mm-hmm. uh where we were discussing this i think that might separate happiness in life more than than rand sees them as as being separated um, when you say, um, I mean, you were saying that these values, your YouTube channel and your friends and, and so forth, 
mm-hmm. are your reason for wanting to live. Mm-hmm. So now simultaneously, those constitute your life. So it's like mm-hmm. the, the things which make up your life are also your, your reason for wanting to continue living. So mm-hmm. it's like you're, you're living for the sake of more living. Um, yeah. And I guess that's, maybe that gets it. This is a way of saying that life is an end in itself. It's, it's its yeah. own end. It's a self-sustaining, self-generating process. It's pursued for mm-hmm. its own sake. Now, uh, happiness, I, I think, is also, it's kind of wrapped up with these activities. You, you enjoy mm-hmm. your YouTube channel and so forth, as do I. And you want to get more of that. So it's, if you put it as like your, your, your reason for wanting to do these activities is so that you can get happiness. Um, I wonder if that's, that's kind of a way of saying like your, your reason for wanting to have happiness is so that you can get happiness because happiness is already bound up with these activities. Mm. It's not something separate from them. And I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if, um, you agree with that, but it's the the way you're formulating it made me at least cautious in thinking that you were somehow separating happiness from the activities that give rise to or are associated with happiness. Hmm. So I guess your idea is you need happiness as as a kind of justifier. Like life is not its own justification. Uh, you need something in addition to life to justify the choice to live. That's what I'm not sure is right, that you need something in addition to life. Because if you already bake into the idea of life, happiness, happiness is part of, or an aspect of life, then you don't need anything beyond life to justify the Uh choice to live. Yeah, so I think, I guess, yeah, if you formulate it that way, then you don't need happiness separate from it. Um, Yeah, that makes sense. So like, but it's like the reason that you choose to live is because baked in that aspect of life is sort of this happiness. That's sort of how I think about it in that sense. Like, because like, I I like that formulation of like, the reason you live is for living because living your life is your friends, your family, YouTube channel, career, yourself, um, like self-maintaining those, those sort of things. Like your, your, that's what your life is, and that sort of brings happiness. And like, and you're essentially living for those things, for those values, and those values being your life. So you're living for life as a sort of end in itself. And baked into this is happiness. And because the because your life brings you happiness, you choose to live. I mean, that's that's that seems to be what this formulation is implying. But I think, yeah, uh, it's. So the, the formulation being, so your formulation is the reason to live is because it brings or pot- at least potentially brings. Oh, wait, you cut out for a second. Sorry. Uh, is the formulation you just referred to the, the, the idea that the reason to live is because it brings at least possibly happiness. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, maybe there's a, there's a sense or angle from which I would agree with that. But is, I mean, does it also seem right to say the reason to live is so that you can live more? Like, could you also put it in terms of yeah. life as its own justification? Yeah, there's, there's, yeah, that, that makes sense because like you're, like when you think about why am I living, going back to the whole values thing, like why am I living because of, um, because of the values, the, the friends, family, career, YouTube, those sort of things. And that you sort of encapsulated as that's also life. Like you're living for life as a justification in itself. So there's a sense in which you like life isn't in itself in that sense. That's, that's why I think that actually brings more clarity for me when thinking about that quote that you brought up earlier, like um, man's life is a standard of value and his, uh, and his own life is his like purpose or whatever the specific quote was. Um, if you know what, which one I'm referring yeah. to. Um, so yeah, that's, I guess that's the, that's the sort of sense in which life is an end in itself. Um, because you want to live to be able to continue living, to continue pursuing those things. But I guess the question that I always think of is like, okay, is life good though? Is life a good thing? And the answer to that is yes, because baked into life, baked into living for like your reward for continually living is happiness. Yeah, so if, I wonder if this uh, implies that in some sense, life is intrinsically a value. If by, if by life here, we're, we mean at least partly a life involving happiness, mm -hmm. um, is that, is it right to say that's intrinsically worth pursuing um, I mean, there is an agent. It's if it is intrinsically mm -hmm. worth pursuing, I would, I would want to say it's intrinsically worth pursuing for the agents. Yeah. Um, so it's not intrinsic in the in the sense that it's like uh, mind independent or agent independent. Um, but is there something? Um, does it seem right to say that it's intrinsically worth pursuing this life of happiness? Or should we, is there some danger in, in saying that it's intrinsic worth pursuing or an intrinsic value? Should we just say it's a value in itself or, well, when you yeah. say in itself, that's kind of another way of saying intrinsic. Um, but yeah. should we just say it's a, it's a value or it's worth pursuing as opposed to intrinsically a value or intrinsically worth pursuing? That's mm -hmm. one question I have. I mean. It, I, yeah, I feel I feel some temptation to use this term intrinsic for some reason, uh, but I don't know if if that would create some kind of problem. Yeah, I'm not. Hmm. I mean, there's I mean, a does, sense. Does it seem which... problematic to you at all to use this term intrinsic? Yeah, the, I, I I don't like the term intrinsic just because of all of the implications it has in philosophy, but there feels like there's a sense in which it's not a bad thing. Like there's a sense in which for this specific context, like a life of happiness is not like, I can't think of a way in which that could be bad. 
or not good inherently, like in and of itself, like as an end in itself. Because you have to, you sort of have to philosophically have an end in itself somewhere. Like if you want to avoid infinite regress, I guess that's, that's really ra a really rationalistic formulation there, but. Um. Yeah, this idea of um, happiness or a life of happiness being an end in itself or something worth pursuing for its own sake. I wonder if these formulations like end in itself, I mean, in itself, that sounds kind of like intrinsic um, or it makes me think of intrinsic or for its own sake. It's like uh, not for the sake yeah. of anything else, but the thing itself for its own mm -hmm. sake, it, it's worth pursuing for its yeah. own sake. I mean, mm -hmm. that's where this idea of it. I think that's why the idea of intrinsic is coming to mind. And it seems like maybe yeah. it's another way of formulating these ideas of something being worth pursuing for its own sake or being an in, in itself. Um, mm -hmm. isn't well, that I guess, hmm. I guess when I think of intrinsic, I, I sort of think like apart from a consciousness, apart from a value or apart from a human, like when you're thinking of like an intrinsic value, for example, like let's say, I don't know, shoot, now, now nothing's coming to mind. Oh, let's the say, let's say the environment. Yep. Environment. There we go. That's, that's the, that's the easy one. <laughs> the environment is Oh, you, from human beings well like that's for a second oh oh yeah so let's let's say let's say the environment is an intrinsic value apart from human beings like that's 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 an example of an intrinsic value because it's like apart from the mind and it's just intrinsically valuable within and of itself like to to some people and that that's obviously a problem but there's also a sense in which life and happiness it's not intrinsic because it doesn't make sense apart from a value or apart from a human being apart from a living organism so I wouldn't say that it doesn't seem intrinsic to pursue to pursue life and happiness as an end in itself uh, because like there's a there's a conscious being that's living there's a conscious being that's achieving that happiness and it's like both a metaphysical fact and sort of a fact of like consciousness as well because like you're happy and you're maintaining your consciousness by living yeah so it's definitely not intrinsic in that sense mm-hmm uh so I, I wonder if there's another kind another sense of intrinsic where it doesn't make sense to to say it's intrinsic. I'm just gonna quickly Google the term intrinsic and just get a sure. common sense definition from the dictionary. So Google tells says uh intrinsic means belonging naturally or essential um let's see what that's a weird definition merriam webster has belonging to the essential nature or constitution of a thing the intrinsic worth of a gem the intrinsic brightness of a star um so maybe that first one belonging to the essential nature or constitution of the thing is it true of life or, or happiness that belonging to their essential nature or constitution, they are worth pursuing. Um, maybe we have to add for the person whose life or happiness it yeah. is. Mm -hmm. uh, for that person, is it essential to the nature of that person's life? Well, that it I is think actually, 
that it's worth. I think when, yeah, I actually think when you add the like the that concept of like for the person, you're sort of making it not intrinsic because think about think about the environment example once again. Like if you value the environment intrinsically, well now let's say you value the environment intrinsically for a person. Well then it's not intrinsic anymore because it's valuable to that person for a specific reason. Although that might be a bad way of valuing a certain thing, like valuing it intrinsically for yourself. That's sort that's sort of contradictory in a sense. Yeah, it's so with the environment, I mean that's something distinct from if we're talking about like, you know, lakes and rivers and oceans mm -hmm. and whereas here the thing at issue is the the person himself who he's potentially valuing just so it's um it's kind of a i don't know a, a self-referential uh framework here mm -hmm. the, the the value is not the environment but the one who is valuing so mm. i mean is the one who is valuing a value for himself um or is it is is one's own life is it part of the essential nature of one's own life that it is valuable well i mean we we can add here is it valuable for oneself mm -hmm. um, but i don't know if um I, I feel this is confusing when it gets self-referential like this. Like, mm -hmm. It's uh, I'm not, I'm not sure how to think of this. I don't want to get lost in words. Anyways. Um, yeah. I, I guess, I, I don't know. I feel like there's a sense in which that doesn't make sense though, because the whole idea of like life, like your life and your happiness being, like almost intrinsically valuable to yourself or sort of valuable to yourself as such. Um, because like, like if you achieve life, if you achieve a life of happiness, like that is good. That is good for you. Be like just in the nature of what that means, of what the terms mean of life and happiness. That is like sort of inherently good because you're happy, you're alive, you exist in a state of psychological, like a, a, in a psychological state of happiness, which is, a good state sort of inherently in inherently in the definition of happiness and if the uh so here, here's a here's another thought on this if we take as the the contrast to intrinsic as opposed to what as opposed to extrinsic i saw that because they have uh in this definition um extrinsic is given as a contrast so if we think of um in x so you know, objectivism has this trichotomy of intrinsic, subjective, and objective. Yeah. But if instead of viewing it from that trichotomy perspective, we have a different kind of perspective on intrinsic, the intrinsic as opposed to the extrinsic, well, that's a different kind of relation. So mm -hmm. maybe that's the sense from which it makes sense, or that's the reason I feel um some attraction to this idea of calling life or happiness an intrinsic value because 
I'm thinking implicitly that the foil, the contrast is with extrinsic as opposed to the contrast mm. being with subjective or objective. So mm. the idea of extrinsic is just something external. So life is not a value for something other than life or, or happiness yeah. is not a value for something uh, other yeah, than yeah. happiness. If it were a value for something other than happiness or if life were a value for something other than life, then it would be a value in virtue of, of an intrinsic consideration. But no, it's a value just on its own, not because of something else. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's, it's from that, under, that perspective on intrinsic that it makes sense to think of life or happiness as an intrinsic value. But maybe from, if you're taking the trichotomy perspective, mm -hmm. then it, it would not be an intrinsic value because that's, yeah. that's the one where it means like apart from any agent. Mm -hmm. And as you were saying, you know, it doesn't make sense for you to yeah. value your life or happiness if you aren't in the picture. Mm -hmm. So that's my, that's my working understanding of this now. It's, it's intrinsic yeah. in some sense, but not in another. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, yeah, that, that, that makes sense because Honestly, in the, with, when you're thinking about the whole trichotomy perspective, it seems like the only word, the only word that it would fall into would be objective because it's sort of valuable in and of itself for the person. Like, I think, I think it would fall under like an objective value in that. If, if, if you want to apply it to that trichotomy, it might not apply perfectly there since it's like, it's sort this is sort of an axiomatic concept of ethics, which makes it really difficult to talk about, to talk about it in terms of like ethics and values, since it's sort of what underlies ethics yeah so the the idea of objective is that there is you're factoring both consciousness and existence mm -hmm. so for something to be an objective value means it's it's uh there's something in the world that you evaluate as mm -hmm. being good for you so it's mm -hmm. not just in your mind that something is good uh, there's some objective fact about reality that makes it mm -hmm. good. Um, mm -hmm. But that fact has to be evaluated by your mind. It's not good in itself yeah. Yeah. in the world. So there's a contribution of both consciousness and existence and mm -hmm. that those together make something an objective value. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, does that apply in the case of your own life as a whole or as such that it's an objective value I mean, I guess, um, hmm. I guess you could you could think of it like that as being objective value because there is this thing in the world, existentially, we might want to say your life, yeah, yeah, and you are evaluating your own life as a good thing, as something thing for your life. Yeah, so it's like self-referential. Uh, yeah, so it's not just in your mind that your life is good. And it's mm -hmm. also not apart from your mind, mm -hmm. your life is good. Uh, it's, it's, it's both, um, both your mind is involved and the world apart from your mind, including your physical body. So yeah, maybe it is right to say that your life is an objective value. So if we're taking the trichotomy perspective, it wouldn't mm -hmm. be an intrinsic value, your own life, it would be an objective value. And if you're taking the non-trichotomy perspective, the intrinsic versus extrinsic yeah. perspective, then maybe it is an intrinsic value in that sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
I guess sort of sort of thinking it from the trichotomy perspective, what would it mean if if it were intrinsic from that perspective? It would mean like it's valuable apart from your life and apart from your happiness, which doesn't make sense because it literally like it quite literally is your life and your happiness. And if it were subjective, it would sort of be taking the sort of existential fact out of it that there's like that it's like something that you actually experience and it's just it's not just something that's like in your mind apart from reality so like it it seems like it has to be objective in that in that sense as it's it's as it's sort of like you're I'm, I'm struggling to formulate this because it's a tough it's a tough self-referential concept um yeah, like like what you were saying before, essentially. Essentially, I'm I'm sort of drawing a blank here. So, yeah. So the I mean, the fact that happiness is involved that brings in uh, the psychological aspect of objectivity. Um, mm. But I'm not sure that's what what makes that that's not what that's not what makes it objective or that's not what fulfills the psychological aspect of objectivity as opposed to the existential aspect i think it it might be that your mind is evaluating your happiness or your life as a good thing and that judgment that value judgments by your mind is what con is what contributes the psychological aspect of, of objectivity um as opposed to the emotion of happiness itself being what makes it objective. Rather, it's the value judgments. My life is good or my happiness is good. Um, if we're going to say that life or happiness is an objective value, um, what makes it objective is that you are judging it to be a value. And I guess there's some kind of existential reason for thinking it's a value. Um, so it was just the formulation of, um, I think you said something like, uh, happiness is what makes it objective or part of what makes it objective. Um, but I'm not sure that's right. The right way to put it. I think it might be more the value judgment you have about happiness is mm. probably what makes it objective. We're getting into some fine-grained distinctions here, and it's it's easy to lose track of all this. I don't know if any of this is yeah. um, coming across clearly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, 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 I'm, I think I'm getting it for the most part. It's it's tough. To, it's tough to it's tough to like reformulate and restate. Um, but hmm. happiness. Wait, could you restate that quick? So think about happiness when you say that something is an objective value mm -hmm. you're saying there's there's something in the world that you're judging to be good mm -hmm. so <clears throat> it's a little weird to say that about happiness because is happiness something in the world it's yeah. isn't it supposed to be like this internal or psychological state uh if so how could it be an objective value um, so, uh, that, that's another wrinkle on, on all of this, which I didn't mention before, mm. which, well, I mean, I mean, co concepts of consciousness though, those are objective too, because you're sort of consciously identifying a sort of mental process that you're engaging. It's like, it's, 
and you're like sort of creating that concept with the due to like degrees of intensity or what specifically the emotion is um and i get so there's a sense in which happiness still is an objective i mean happiness obviously still is an objective concept and i think it would be an objective value here too as you can sort of evaluate it like evaluate that you can sort of evaluate that emotional um that emotion in your head as good you can evaluate it as something that is a good feeling like there's you can't really get under that you can't get under the feeling of happiness really as being good yeah so i think <clears throat> i was i was conflating the like objective with mind independence. I mean, that is one sense of objective. Something is objective mm -hmm. if it's independent of the mind. But I think that the relevant one here, when we're talking about like an objective value or an objective concept is just, it's an aspect of reality as evaluated or as um, apprehended by the mind. So if you just put it that way, well, yeah, uh, consciousness is an aspect of reality it's not independent of consciousness or independent of the mind, but it is an aspect of reality. So mm -hmm. um, conscious of consciousness, including happiness are aspects of reality as grasped by and as evaluated by the mind. So, yeah, I think that that erases the worry that, that I, I was having a minute ago about, well, happiness is something internal and psychological. So how can it be objective uh, it can be objective because it's it's still an aspect of reality. It's not objective mm -hmm. in the sense of being mind independent, but that's not the relevant sense here when we're talking about objectivity uh, in the way we are now by saying something is an objective value. So, um, so to say happiness is an objective value means it's an aspect of reality evaluated mm -hmm. by us to be good. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's, that's what it would mean to say happiness is an objective value or that life mm -hmm. is an objective value. Mm -hmm. Some part of reality or aspect of reality that we evaluate to be good. So, yeah. um, as to how that exactly relates to what we were talking about earlier. Uh, I think you were saying happiness. I think you were saying happiness is an objective value. And I was mm -hmm. challenging that by saying, Oh, actually it's the value judgment of happiness. That's mm -hmm. an objective value. But now that I'm thinking about it more now, I, I think it seems like it would be fine to say it as you did. Happiness is an objective value. Yeah, and now that seems right to me. Yeah, for sure. Dope. Um, and then, yeah. Hmm. I'm trying to think of what the big picture of this conversation is and sort of tie this back into that general, broader concept of like, of I guess what we were talking about earlier, sort of this this integration of, of life and happiness being this sort of... Uh, like value in and of itself. And that's sort of, that, that's sort of what got this, caught this conversation going at sort of being that um, sort of uh, that uh, we, happiness is sort of this purpose of life and 
why why we continue living i don't know if that like it, it what's your opinion i guess on that formulation that happiness kind of being the purpose of life or the purpose of yeah that that just basically that formulation i guess with uh well i mean i i think there there's a perspective from which that's that's true and Rand does say that uh, in a, in a number of places. So I think not only is it true, but it's also Rand's view. So, um, mm -hmm. but if that's understood in contrast to the view that life is also the purpose of life, mm -hmm. that's, that's where I think, uh, that's where I think some trouble might come. Yep. yep. For sure. For sure. Because happiness is sort of, inherent to like pursuing life pursuing our values and sort of pursuing life as an end in itself that happiness is sort of a part of that and it's it sort of seems like it almost sort of seems like two different as we were talking about earlier two different perspectives on that same issue like thinking back to the living because of friends family etc etc um it's sort of it's sort of saying that oh i'm choosing to live because of my life my values obviously like the things that like the things that are my life that define my life, the friends, family, et cetera. Um, and, and happiness would just be a different perspective on that and saying like, psychologically, I pursue these things because they bring me happiness and because of this reward of happiness. So there's a, there's a sense in which obviously we integrate the two and that's what sort of, sort of what, what she means, I guess, when she says at one point that, man's own life is his purpose is his moral purpose verse and on, on another hand says happiness is his moral purpose they're they're two different perspectives on the same thing it's sort of it's sort of like um you pursue life as this sort of like existential thing it's those values and then happiness is the psychological perspective of like what what those values bring you what the reward those values give the achievement of those values yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's a, a plausible interpretation of, of her view. And it seems just apart from that, a plausible view. Um, so I think it can make sense to say life is the purpose of life and happiness is the purpose of life. And just mm -hmm. understand that those are two perspectives on the same thing, an existential perspective mm -hmm. and a psychological perspective. And I guess the danger would only come where you think of like uh, happiness is the purpose of life as opposed to like instead of mm -hmm. life being the purpose of life. Or if you think of what happiness is the justification for life as opposed to life being its own justification. Um, that's that's the, where, where I'm concerned that... Uh, yeah it might not be the right view hmm. because I think life, I feel, you could say it is its own justification. It's an end in itself. We don't need anything else beyond it, but for certain purposes, you want to, you might want to highlight the psychological aspect of life hmm. um, as being the purpose. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, oh. yeah, I think, I guess one thing that, I'm trying to think how to formulate this. Oh, uh, I guess one thing that I, 
would want to add is that I guess, or question you, I, I guess, ask about is doesn't life only make sense as a justification if happiness is baked in? Like if life does not bring happiness, if life is not defined like as a life qua man, a life of happiness, life isn't really an end in itself if you don't define it in that way. Yeah, I, I think if you, if you abstract it out, the happiness part of life, mm-hmm. then it wouldn't make sense to say life is an end in itself or its own justification. You would need something beyond life. Um, yeah. Th- that strikes me as plausible. But obviously, like, that's that's not the world that we live in. We live in a world where where life does bring happiness. Happiness is the reward for life. That's sort of, like, kind of the definition of happiness. Happiness being just the reward for the non-contradictory joy that is the reward for achieving your life and your values that are consistent with life. So, like, that's, we can't really say that, oh, like, imagine this. We can't, we can't like, sort of say when we're trying to define our ethics, imagine this other world where, um, life and happiness are abstracted away from each other. Now we need happiness to justify life. Like that's, that's not what we actually do. That's not actually the universe that we live in. Yeah. I mean, you could do that thought experiment and it might make sense mm-hmm. to, to say that uh, in that counterfactual world that happiness is the justification of life and life is not its own justification. Life needs some justification beyond itself. But if in the world we live in, um, where uh, happiness is part of life, I think it makes sense to say um, both happiness is the is the purpose of life, and life is the purpose of life. You put it a, a minute ago as uh, happiness is the reward of life. Okay, but just remember, you could also say life is the reward of life. It's its own reward. Mm-hmm. Why? because it includes happiness. Yep, yep. So as long as you, when you say happiness is the reward of life, you don't imply by that, that happiness is something distinct from life in the actual world, mm-hmm. then then I think it's okay to say that. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I mean, it's okay to say anything, <laughs> but I just mean like, yeah. I, I think or, it's, I think it's, it's Rand's view at least, and I think it's plausible that it's true that happiness is part of life as she conceives it um when she says a man's life is the standard of value so you Mm -hmm. can say happiness is the reward of life but you can also say life is the reward of life you get to have more of life which includes happiness yep yeah for sure yeah that makes sense it seems like we've we've resolved this age-old question that has been perplexing the objectivist philosophers well (laughs) maybe we've resolved part of it i don't know if we've resolved all all of it here's another yeah for sure here's another aspect of it which i'm i'm not sure about um so she says in somewhere that um the choice to live is also the choice to th- to think or to focus. I'm trying to find um, that passage. Um, uh, oh no, that's not it. 
Um, you know, the one where she says like existentially the choice to think or not to think is, um, I don't want to misquote it. Uh, let's see. And she includes to be or not to be. Oh, here it is. Psychologically, the choice to think or not to, th to think or not is the choice to focus or not. Existentially, the choice to focus or not is the choice to be conscious or not. Metaphysically, the choice to be conscious or not is the choice of life or death. That's paragraph 40 of the Objectivist Ethics. So she's, she's equating the choice to think or not with the choice to focus or not, with the choice to be conscious or not, with the choice of life or not, life or death. And they're, they're all the same choice from different perspectives, a psychological perspective, an existential perspective, and a metaphysical perspective. Now, in, in OPAR, Dr. Peikoff says that the choice to focus or not, for, for that choice, there is no why. Like, you can't ask, it doesn't make sense to ask, why did someone mm -hmm. choose to focus rather than not? Um, and that's, that's part of what being a primary choice means, that there is no why. Um, it's once you've made that choice, then you can consider reasons for doing such and such, but you can't consider reasons until you're already in focus. So there yeah. can't be a reason to focus. <clears throat> so now, but then hold up. I've, I, this, this is something that I guess I have a few questions or sorry if I broke your train of thought. Well, let, let me just say one more thing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So if there's no reason, no why for the choice to focus, and the choice to focus is the same choice as the choice to live or not, then there shouldn't also, there's no reason to choice to live or not, which is what we've been talking about for much of this call. You know, what is the reason to live? What's the justification for choosing to live rather than not? Is, is, it, is it its own justification? Is it intrinsically a value? Um, so how do we integrate these two, two ideas that, there is no there's no reason or justifier for the choice to focus yet the choice to focus is the same choice from another perspective as the choice to live yet there is a justification at least according to some like daryl wright for the choice to live he says there are these non-deliberative grounds to choose to live um and that makes it not an arbitrary choice uh so, so do you see the the tension that i'm trying to raise here yeah yeah now in also in opar he says um that he, he i think he calls uh, um the person who doesn't choose to live a moral monster or something like that mm -hmm. on page two eight two forty eight he says um 
uh, a primary choice does not mean an arbitrary, whimsical, or groundless choice. There are grounds for a certain primary choice, and those grounds are reality, all of it. The choice to live, as we have seen, is the choice to accept the realm of reality. This choice is not only not arbitrary, it is the precondition of criticizing the arbitrary. It is the base of reason. A man who would throw away his life without cause, who would reject the universe on principle and embrace a zero for its own sake, such a man, according to objectivism, would belong on the lowest rung of hell. His action would indicate so profound a hatred of himself, of values, of reality, that we, he would have to be condemned by any human being as a monster. Um, and I'll just finish the paragraph. The moment he would announce his decision seriously, he would be disqualified as an object of intellectual debate. One cannot argue with or about a walking corpse who has just consigned himself to the void, the void of the non-conscious, the non-ethical, the non-anything. So there, um, he's, he's saying that this person belongs on the lowest rung of hell and he would have to be condemned as a monster. Well, this is kind of uh, moral language, strong moral language. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but doesn't that imply that the choice to live itself, this primary choice, is not a pre-moral choice? Mm -hmm. um, it, it's, already a, it's already a choice that justifies moral condemnation or not. But mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's said in like in Daryl Wright's essay and other places that the primary choice is a pre-moral choice. But if it's a pre-moral choice, how does it make sense to morally condemn someone who goes one way or the other on it? Hmm. That's, not, that's something I'm not clear on. And also the idea that <clears throat> there are grounds for a certain primary choice. Well, if there are grounds for the, a primary choice to live, why aren't there also grounds for the primary choice to focus? Since it's the same choice from a different perspective. Yet he says mm -hmm. in chapter two, when he's talking about the primary choice to focus, that there is no why. But isn't that a way of saying that there are no grounds for it? A man just chooses. He says, it is invalid to ask, why did a man choose to focus? There is no such why. There is only the fact that a man chose. He chose the effort of consciousness or he chose non-effort and unconsciousness. In this regard, every man at every waking moment is a prime mover. Okay, well, if there is no <clears throat> such a why for the choice to focus and it's the same choice as the choice to live, then there is no why for the choice to live. There's only, there's only the fact that a man chose to live. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. It's not clear to I mean, me how the condemnation comes in. Is it, is it the same to say that there's no grounds for that, for the choice to focus, and to say that there's, or there's no reason for the choice to focus, and to say that there's no motivation to the choice to focus? Um, because it seems like, it seems like um, in saying that there's no reason for the choice to focus, you're almost, it's, it's the, like, attempt to sort of avoid determinism to avoid like the sort of idea that there is some external reason or some reason that a man chose to focus that's like almost apart from him but it's like 
the choice to focus is sort of this like self-generated thing it's for almost for the like almost for the sake of focusing that you choose to focus i i hmm. i don't know that's 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 an issue i struggle with because i don't i don't know if i fully grasp the implications of Peacock's saying that there, you don't have a, or you like, there's no grounds for that choice. Or what? What, what was the specific quote? Uh, there is no. Uh, I'll just. It's on page sixty. He says um, it's invalid to ask why did a man choose to focus. There is no such why. There mm -hmm. is only the fact that a man chose. If he chose the effort of consciousness, or he chose non-effort in and unconsciousness in this regard every man at every waking moment is a prime mover so mm -hmm. he doesn't use the term grounds or reason or motivation but i think that's basically what it comes down to you could use those terms like he could have instead of saying there is no such why he could have said there is no reason or motivation or grounds there's only the fact that a man chose mm -hmm. I take it those are all just different ways of saying the same thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's not clear to me how there, there's not grounds for that choice, yet there is grounds for the choice to live, given that those are supposed to be the same choice um, from different perspectives. So that, that's, that's one thing I'm not clear about. There, there's also like, um, there's going from a state of unfocus to a state of focus. And then there's already being in a state of focus and choosing to maintain focus. Well, mm -hmm. if that's the kind of choice to focus we're talking about, then I guess there could be some kind of grounds if you're already in focus and you yeah you have to just maintain that focus well then you could consider reasons mm -hmm. to maintain and focus and maybe there's some parallel yeah, to the choice to live if you you're already choosing to live then maybe in that framework or from that context you could consider reasons to continue living but mm. i guess you could never be you could never be in a state of not living and then choosing to live. You're already living. Yep. You have to already be living to make the choice whether to live or or not. Yeah. So that's, that's an interesting difference between the choice to focus or not, which I haven't really considered before, is that you can yeah. sometimes make the choice to focus or not from a state of unfocus. I guess if you're just waking up and you're very groggy or something, but you can never make the choice to live or not from a state of not living unless we're including mm. a not living a, like a subhuman way of living. And maybe that is how we should be thinking of it. Cause when she talks about the choice to live, she means live qua man. Uh, that's the choice we phrase. Should we be yeah. choices, rational being or suicidal animal? Um, it's not zero or, or, or life. Um, and it is, it's also, 
So maybe there, the parallel is still there between the choice to focus or not from a state of unfocus, which we might say is like yeah. a subhuman state of consciousness. And then the choice to live or not can be made from a state of not fully living, not being present rationally. We haven't chosen to act, activate mm -hmm. our minds yet. So, yeah, I guess they are still parallel. Yeah, I mean, but that still like, leaves leaves me with this know. puzzle about uh, about why there's no such why there's no why for the choice to focus, but there is in some sense a why for the choice to live. At least in some passages, I don't know if Peikoff yeah. would always say that. Yeah. Huh. I mean, it feels like like with the, with the with the choice to focus, like I can. Like, let's say I'm just like work, I'm just like reading a book and then all of a sudden, like I realize I'm drifting and then I, I'm like, oh, oh, let me focus again. Like there's, there's a sense in which you kind of can choose to focus for a reason. I mean, you definitely choose to focus. <clears throat> it's, it feels, it feels weird to say there's no why to that. I'm trying to think of what that like explicitly means so that I, because I guess right now I'm sort of struggling to expand on that because I'm not fully sure what the implications of like saying there's no why to your choice to focus or not to focus means. Yeah, well, think about, I mean, doesn't it seem kind of incoherent to say there could be a why? Because if there were a why, some reason you were considering, mm -hmm. you would already be in focus. Yeah. You would have oh, to be yeah, in focus. For sure, for sure. Mm-hmm to consider that reason so, so yeah so sort of i guess then there's a reason to like maintain focus then like as you were saying like you you can say like oh i'm already in focus i'm already focusing on like trying to read this thing and then i see that i'm drifting and like i'm sort of focused on that and i'm like no maintain focus focus on what i'm doing right now um and it's it's a, i guess it would be a similar thing with life like if you if you notice like in life you're starting to like drift or starting to not like live as a human being and focus on your values, then you can sort of say, no, I need to focus on these values and choose to live once again. Uh, maybe. Um, yeah. So maybe if, if you're already in focus, you, you can see reasons for continuing to choose to focus um, it's, it's only when you're, when you haven't yet chosen to focus that there would be no why. And when you haven't yet chosen to live in a human sense, qua rational being, um, which I guess involves having a focused mind. So when you haven't yet made that choice, that there wouldn't be a why mm. um, because until you're in focus until you're living in that sense you can't yeah entertain further reasons to mm -hmm. live but then <laughs> then w would you really need reasons to live or to focus then if you if if you've already made the choice to focus or to live then uh yeah i mean yeah it's sort of like a continual process though like you have to 
continually focus and you have to continually live. So you have to sort of decide, oh, am I going to continue to focus here? Am I going to continue to pursue my life? And then you can ask that question and realize like, in the case of life, like I have these values and they bring me happiness. And now for that reason, I'm going to continue living as a human being and pursuing my happiness. Yeah. <clears throat> so then, um, I mean, how does that, does that help resolve this puzzle that I was posing before? Is it right to say that there is no such why? Is it only right some of the time to say there is no such why, but not others? When we're talking about the primary maybe choice. it's maybe it's like in that just initial choice to live or initial choice to focus like you don't you don't really like when you decide to start pursuing values there's not really like a or when you decide to live or decide to focus there's not really a why you just sort of make that uh, that's weird to say huh this is i this is not something i've given much thought to this is interesting I'm glad, I'm glad we're going into this because this is something that I think we, I need to think about more. <clears throat> One thing I wonder about is the, the distribution of these choices. Like how often is it that we're making the choice to get into focus from a state of unfocus as opposed to maintain focus once we're already in focus? So... <clears throat> There's two ways we could be choosing to focus. We could be choosing that state from a state of unfocus, or we could be choosing that state from a state of focus. And it would just be in that in the latter case, choosing to continue to focus. So like uh, in the morning, when I wake up, do I, is that when I make a choice to focus from a state of unfocus and then the rest of the day, is all my choices to focus are just choices to maintain focus. Um, so in that case, um, I would be lot, making a lot more choices of the maintain focus variety than mm -hmm. of the get into focus from a non-focus kind of variety of choice to focus. But I think it's, we know that we can go out of focus during the day too, as you were saying, sometimes you're reading a book, mm -hmm. find that, your mind is just wandering. Um, and so I don't think it's right that we just choose like once in the morning to get into focus from a state of unfocus. And then all mm. our remaining choices during the day are to focus our choices to maintain focus. Um, I think there are times throughout the day. I mean, it could vary from day to day, depending on what you're doing. Um, uh, it, it could vary as to how much, how many times you are choosing to maintain focus versus get into focus from a state of non-focus. Um, I imagine that varies a lot among people and then for a given person, uh, depending on that person's, what that person is doing. Um, so yeah, I think there's, there's quite a bit of variability there. And then we could, we can map all this onto the choice to live and then likewise say there's a lot of variability in um, 
the kinds of choices to live people make, some of them being choices to live from a state of uh, not having not not having made the choice to live, I guess being on a subhuman level and just letting one's mind wander. And then there are other choices to live, choices to live which are choices to continue uh, having one's mind be fully engaged, fully alert in pursuing values, um, mm. aware to aware of all the relevant considerations, holding context, doing all the things mentally we need to in order to uh, maximally succeed in pursuing values. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, I mean, I'm still not sure what to make of this statement. Maybe it's in, only in a subset of, maybe the statement is just too generalized. Like, maybe it would be mm -hmm. more accurate to say sometimes there's a why. But then yeah. I, I still worry that that's incoherent. No. Yeah. I, it is incoherent if you're assuming it's the kind of choice to focus where you're coming in from a state of unfocus. <clears throat> it's, but it's not incoherent to think you could have a why for a choice to focus if you're coming, if you're just choosing to maintain focus. So maybe there's an implicit assumption of the kind of choice to focus he's talking about here. Um, yeah, that, that is just like the choice, the initial choice to focus, the primary choice to focus. Yeah. Yeah. And I, we might want to distinguish between primary, primary choices to focus and mm -hmm. secondary, yeah. primary choices to focus, where the primary, yeah. primary choice is where you're, you're choosing to focus from a state of unfocus. And a secondary, primary choice to focus would be a case where you're choosing to focus from a state where you're already in focus. So you've already mm. made the choice to focus, but then you're just, your further choice to focus is just the choice to maintain focus, not to get into focus yeah. in the first place. So maybe if we mm. draw that distinction, that would help make sense of this, this passage. And maybe what he means is there's no such why for a primary, primary choice. Yeah. Uh, I thought it, maybe it's worth adding that I think uh, Harry Benswanger in an article, I believe it's Volition as Cognitive Self-Regulation, he says there's a kind of motivation for the primary choice. He says there's a metaphysical motive hmm. um, as opposed to some specific thing in reality <clears throat> that's motivating someone to focus. It's just reality as such. I think that's what he means by saying there's a metaphysical yeah. motive that, that actually reminds me of the Greg Salamiria quote that uh, Puya talked about or in, in our conversation where it was like, it's, it's, it kind of draws that parallel to that choice to live. Because when you make that choice to live, you're sort of choosing based on the fact of like everything. You're choosing to live. You're choosing to exist in reality. And that sort of ties that parallel to like choosing your values and choosing the th those things. That's, that's sort of what you're choosing when you live. And it's, it's that same thing when you choose to focus, you're choosing to focus like on metaphysics sort of, or the, the, whatever the thing that Ben Swinger said metaphysically, like focus on reality and focus for the sake of reality, of being in focus essentially. Yeah, <laughs> so he calls it a metaphysical motive and it's just, there's a motive to, I guess the idea is motivation is to be of, aware of the world as a whole, not some particular thing 
within the world, but just to be aware of anything you need to be aware of. Be open to perceiving everything. And that would seem to align with, uh, or align with uh, where Dr. Peikoff talks about the primary choice to live. And he says there are grounds for a certain mm -hmm. primary choice. And those grounds are reality, all of it. Mm -hmm. The choice to live, as we have seen, is the choice to accept the realm of reality. Well, that's, that's kind of what you're doing when you're, you're focusing your mind. You're accepting the realm of reality. You're, you're getting your mind in gear to be alert to anything you might need to deal with. So it's kind of a, uh, a metaphysical focus, you might want to say. Um, okay. But <laughs> then if there are these grounds to focus, or if there are these grounds to choose to live, those grounds being reality, all of it, Mm -hmm. then couldn't we just say the same thing about the primary choice? Um, there is a why as to why, to choose, why did a man chose to focus, namely reality, all of it. Can't we say that? Mm -hmm. So, <clears throat> yeah, I guess yeah. I, I still so, don't have... Uh, I, hmm, my, I think... Hmm, I. I don't know if we're necessarily applying that Peikoff quote correctly. I'm trying to think of what actual context he meant that quote, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure that this specific like sort of focus looking at look. I'm I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of what what he would specifically mean by saying there's no why because there's because hmm. it it seems like there's a sense that there's no sort of why in a lot of these primary choices but there still is sort of a grounds for making those choices it's not like in a completely arbitrary choice it's hmm. maybe this is where well i don't know if this is where daryl wright's distinction between a deliberative grounds and a non-deliberative grounds would be helpful like maybe yeah there is a grounds in a non-deliberative sense or non-propositional content sense but there's not a ground in a propositional content sense. Um, I mean, as, as to the, uh, let, let me just read one paragraph before the one where he says there is no why. So right before that, he says, there can be no motive or value judgment which precedes consciousness and which induces a man to become conscious the decision to perceive reality must precede value judgments. Otherwise, values have no source in one's cognition of reality and thus become delusions. Values do not lead to consciousness. Consciousness is what leads to values. And then he's, he goes on to say, in short, is it, it is invalid to ask why did a man choose to focus? There is no such why. So <clears throat> he's uh, elaborating in that prior paragraph about this idea that there is no why. Um, I mean, it, and uh, I mean, just to re restate or reword, it's um, consciousness precedes value judgments. Value judgments don't precede consciousness. Um, mm -hmm. You first have to be conscious to consider you know, this would be good for me or this would not be good for me. 
So it's like you have to make the choice to be conscious without the guidance of any values. Yeah. But then, you know, that's, you might worry that's arbitrary. Um, but I, I think, I mean, I think he deals in a, in a satisfactory way, at least it seems plausible to me that he handles the arbitrary worry issue. Or he, he handles the worry that there's arbitrariness well when he says um, <clears throat> the choice to live as we have seen is the choice to accept the realm of reality. This choice is not only not arbitrary, yeah. it's a precondition of criticizing the arbitrary. It's the basis of reason. So it doesn't really make sense to say a primary choice is arbitrary if the primary choice is accepting reality because what gives rise to the claim or what gives rise to this idea of something being arbitrary is that you've already, you're already in the realm of reality. And once you're in that realm and you say something is arbitrary, then what that means is saying it's not based on reality or something, something like that. So if you haven't yet entered the realm of reality by getting your mind into focus or by choosing to live, then there's no sense to saying that some choice is arbitrary. It's only after you've chosen to accept reality that then you can say other choices you make yeah. are arbitrary. Mm -hmm. But then is it good to accept the realm of reality though? I mean, that's sort of what my, that's sort of the initial question that pops into my head with this. Mm -hmm. Well, conditionally good if you want to live. <laughs> yeah. But is it unconditionally? That I don't know that it, it makes sense to say that it's unconditionally good to accept reality because the, the whole notion of good presupposes you've already accepted reality. Like things can be good if you've they're good by reference to the fact that of your life. They're good because mm -hmm. they help maintain your life. But if you haven't yet chosen life, if you haven't yet accepted yeah. life, then how can something be good? Hmm. I mean, I think that's what it, I don't know. It seems it seems like we can sort of like realize that life is good just by looking at reality but we have to like be alive to look at reality and see that life is good so it's sort of it becomes a difficult issue here yeah and you have to be in focus to see that mm -hmm. life is good yes so it's it's almost like i'm i'm sort of looking at it as a decision of should i maintain life should i continue living when this is sort of talking about like should you accept reality at all? And there's no, there's no real reason why you end up like coming into focus initially. You simply s snap into focus or that seems weird because it makes it sound like random or deterministic. Well, I, I don't, I don't know why it would be that. Um, I mean, it, it's, so why, why not just say it's, it's volitional. It's neither yeah. random nor deterministic. Um, it's volitional, and but it's not. It's not motivated. 
and it's not arbitrary because the concept of arbitrary doesn't apply yet until you've made the choice. Hmm. So the, the, the sting of arbitrariness, you know, the sting is taken out when we're talking about the primary choice because the sting only comes once you've uh, already accepted reality as your realm. Then you can criticize someone for saying, well, this is just arbitrary. It's based on nothing. It's not based on anything in reality. Okay. Well, if you haven't gotten yourself into reality yet, then uh, what's the, what's the yeah. problem? Hmm. Yeah. I think, I think I have a lot of thinking to do on this because this is a, I think this is an issue that I have to work out a lot more, like this whole issue of how can we sort of choose reality? Like, do we, do we choose reality? Yeah, it seems like we do. Like, we have to choose to focus. But it seems weird to think of a choice as sort of unmotivated. Uh, I mean, certainly it's weird to think of some choices as unmotivated. Uh, but is, I mean, you know, I, I choose to eat food because I want to satisfy my hunger and you choose to go to school because you want to get a degree and advance your life mm -hmm. and your career. So yeah, all kinds of choices are motivated, but is it right to say that, you know, could there be some subset, namely the primary choice that is not motivated or that maybe is motivated in an unusual kind of way. Um, like, should we say it's, it has a metaphysical motive to use this, this term Harry uses, Harry Benswanger. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it, if it is right to say that all choices have a motive, I think we at least need to say that they don't all have a motive in the same kind of way. So yeah. Some have like a specific kind of motive and some are more generic or metaphysical. <clears throat> maybe, maybe Dr. Peikoff would agree with that. And maybe the, he just, there's a different way of uh, phrasing it. Like maybe instead of talking in terms of metaphysical motives and specific motives, he just talks in terms of there being uh, no motives, and then ordinary motives. And yeah. since the motive involved in the primary choice is not the ordinary kind of motive, like the motive to eat food or to mm -hmm. go to school, um, he just says there's no motive. Yeah. So it's like he's saying there's no motive, but there is like a different kind of motive that he doesn't define in this context as motive it's like that it's like the metaphysical motive the motive to like the motive to focus on reality it's sort of like a it, feel, it feels like almost like a self-referential motive like you the reason that you focus is sort of to focus on reality almost or to exist in reality to exist <laughs> in the realm of reality i mean maybe i mean maybe that would align his view with harry benzoinger's but i I kind of doubt it because I mean, he said, I'm quoting it and he says, there can be no motive 
or value judgment which precedes consciousness and which induces a man to become conscious. I mean, that's pretty explicit. There is no motive or there can be no mm -hmm. motive. Not only there isn't one, but it's impossible for there to be one. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we, maybe we can try to read into that and say what he really means by that is there's no ordinary sort of motive, but there's a non-deliberative motive, a la Daryl Wright's, or there's a metaphysical motive, a la Harry Binswanger. Um, there's just no motive in the ordinary sense, but I, I'm not very confident that he would want to sign on to that, um, given what he says in this paragraph. Um, values do not lead to consciousness. Consciousness is what leads to values. I mean, some of this language seems pretty strongly against the idea that there's any motive at all. So I, I would be hesitant to attribute that view to him. Mm -hmm. and, and Rand doesn't really, as for her view on all this, um, I mean, I don't think, I, I don't know that she discusses this issue in this kind of detail. Yeah. Um, I mean, she had some sim seminal thoughts on the choice to live and- Oh, you're cutting out focus. a little bit. But um, out a little bit for that last statement. Oh, um, I, I was saying as as for Rand's view, um, I, I don't know that she she I don't know what she would say about all this. Like, would she talk more in the Peacock way, or more in the mm -hmm. Benzwanger or Daryl Wright way? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, Peacock was her intellectual heir in some sense, and he he wrote the book, yeah. so maybe that that puts some more weight on his interpretation when, at least when it comes to figure out, you know, what she would have thought on this. Um, and it is a separate question of, you know, what, what's actually true. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess. Is there a sense in which we can integrate those two perspectives or are they like categorically different, I guess, or. I mean, I was kind of trying to make, I was making an attempt uh, uh, a couple minutes ago to try to integrate them, but I'm not very confident that Peikoff's perspective in the end is consistent with Benzwanger's or Wright's. And I don't even know what Ayn Rand's perspective is because she doesn't seem to get into the, the nitty gritty details of the sort that yeah. But right. he seems he seems to say later that with the whole life perspective that it's like motivated by reality itself. Like it's it's not an arbitrary choice. So it seems like there's a sense in which he doesn't fully hold to that view that there's no choice, like there's no motivation whatsoever. It seems like that sort of distinction between like an ordinary motivation and a and like a metaphysical motivation might be something that Peikoff holds, although that he didn't explicitly state it in, in Opar. Well, yeah, so maybe there's an internal inconsistency in Opar between page 60 and page 248. Um, maybe, maybe it's not an inconsistency, though. Maybe it's like just a different sort of focus on certain things. Like what, like what, what is Peikoff's intent with saying that there's no motivation for, for choosing to focus? Like what is his what like what what does that sort of mean in reality what is what is the intention of saying of like emphasizing that point 
what is the yes so what's his motivation for saying there's no motivation yeah <laughs> Uh, for for me for me it sounds like it's more like just trying to say like there's nothing like the, it's just like a primary choice like there's no explanatory factor apart from the choice itself like that's it's it seems like it's almost avoiding determinism in that sense it's trying to avoid it's trying to say like there's no like reason in reality that forces you to make this choice versus a different choice that's sort of how I interpret that or the intent behind it. It's that statement. Well, I mean, I think he's trying to flesh out the nature of the primary choice mm -hmm. in, uh, in chapter two. And so, I mean, I think that's his motivation for discussing this issue of motivation as it relates to the primary choice. He's just trying to lay out clearly what is the nature of this thing? And part of the nature of it is that there is no motivation. There's no why. Um, I guess because, I mean, this is something that people will often raise as an objection or a confusion or a criticism. Um, like all choices have to have reasons. So what's the reason for the primary choice? And he wants, maybe he wants to, partly his reason for going into this is to address that kind of question. Say, look, you're, you're not understanding the nature of a primary choice, which is that it's not like other choices. Uh, it doesn't have reasons or motives. Um, but then, you know, as you pointed out, and uh, as I think I came up earlier, uh, he does say in connection with the choice to live that there are grounds for it. Mm -hmm. So how is that consistent with the idea that there's no motivation for the choice to focus, given that they're the same choice from different perspectives? Mm -hmm. So uh, I think maybe, maybe there is a tension between these, these two passages in Opar and uh, I don't know if there's a way to resolve that. I'm I mean, it, sure. se it seems like it seems like we were on to something with that sort of distinction between like an ordinary choice and a metaphysical choice. That could be a potential way to resolve it, since like there's no like you could you could look at the there's no why as sort of saying there's no like explicit reason for it, but you still have this implicit reason of reality. Maybe, but I, I'm not sure that's consistent with, with what he says here, when he says there, there can be no motivation or value judgments, uh, which induces someone to become conscious. Because wouldn't, that, wouldn't this metaphysical motivation be something in, that induces someone to, to become conscious. Values do not lead to consciousness. Consciousness is what leads to values. So, I mean, with the value of being in touch with reality, I mean, if that's, 
if that's what's motivating someone, well, they'd already have to be conscious to consider that motive. Uh, well, maybe it's not like a, maybe it's not an ex explicit motive though. It could be sort of implicit in that, in that choice to focus. A non-deliberative motive to yeah. use the whole rights term. Maybe, I mean, he, he doesn't draw a distinction between explicit and implicit motives. He just says there can be no motive. Um, so does he really mean there, there can be no explicit motive? Um, maybe, but I, I'm not, I'm not very confident about that. Yeah. I wouldn't want to bet my life on it. <laughs> mm -hmm. For sure. For sure. Values have no source in one's cognition of reality. Does he really mean values have no source in one's explicit cognition of reality, but they could have a source in one's implicit cognition of reality? Maybe, but... It's possible. Yeah, it's... Explicit values do not lead to consciousness, but maybe implicit values could lead to consciousness yeah possibly possibly hmm. i mean what about an animal an animal doesn't have explicit values in the sense of propositionally formulated value judgments um animals don't really can't really make those choices though they can't really choose to focus so to speak well yeah yeah, so this is not even applicable to, to them uh, plausibly. Yeah. I was just trying to think of like what would be something at least that has implicit values or non-deliberative values. I guess you could think of it like an animal or a baby maybe. Um, mm. So... Uh, yeah, I think this is just uh, a question mark right now for me. Yeah, no, for sure. I think it's, yeah, it's it's interesting to dive into, but I didn't, <laughs> I have a feeling we're not going to resolve that, that this issue as it's something that has been debated by objectivist intellectuals for a long time. But I think, I think we've made a little bit of progress and at least identifying what the issue is to sort of think about in the future and for viewers, if you have any if you have any thoughts, leave them in the comments below to resolve this issue. Please do. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, I think. Yeah, there's a. I mean. There's a sense in which it's not motivated, though, the choice to focus. Like, you simply just do focus. Because if you're going to decide to, like, focus on a thing, you have to first decide to focus. Like, you have to first decide to focus on the fact that you want to focus. So, I don't know. Focus, focus is a difficult issue for me that I have to do a lot more thinking and reading in to fully grasp. And, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's a tricky one. I, I uh, Volition was actually 
one of the issues I, I first wrestled with in philosophy uh, and many years ago in high school. Um, I was like, I was obsessed with free will and how to make sense of it. Uh, and, and I wrote a master's thesis on, on free will um, many years after that. And I, I've gotten away from it a bit recently in working on selfishness, but mm -hmm. I think it's a very interesting and important issue, a very foundational issue. Um, and I guess it's, uh, it's very important to objectivism and the culture. I mean, Sam Harris is coming to mind as this prominent oh, yeah. of determinism. Uh, so he's out there you know, promoting his ideas. And I guess if, if uh, we want to promote objectivism and part of doing that is getting clear on free will and having coherent, consistent answers, mm -hmm. you know, alternatives to the, the determinists or indeterminists. Um, so I mean, it's not that the only reason to be interested in this is polemical and fighting mm -hmm. against other people, but that's, that's oh, one yeah. reason, one motivation, a specific non-metaphysical motivation one might be interested in this mm -hmm. is to be able to present objectivism in a coherent way um, to the world. Yeah, and, and sort of resolving this uh, free will determinism debate would have so many, so many implications, especially in the field of psychology where it's like, they haven't even accepted the fact that we have free will yet. And that leads to all sorts of just crazy theories, like the whole Pavlovian thing, which basically treats us like non-volitional animals who like, oh, we're going to salivate after we hear this bell enough times. It's like, yeah, it's, it's just a complete denial of free will and, and ideas and all those sort of things. So I think winning the free will debate would be instrumental in, in changing, um, in changing the scientific landscape, the psychological landscape, and eventually like making objectivism prominent in the culture. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's quite a blow to man's self-esteem too, to think that you're just this puppet mm -hmm. or you don't have control over your own mind. And I guess that's, you know, that could pave the way to authoritarianism and dictatorship. You know, if people see themselves as these uh, puppets basically who don't have control of their own lives um, and you know they have a view of a low view of a low self-esteem because they have this metaphysical view of their own nature mm -hmm. then maybe that reduces the the resistance to to tyranny um, I mean can you really have self-esteem to stand up for yourself uh, if you see yourself as just this deterministic machine. Um, mm -hmm. I think people with self-esteem and pride and confidence, I mean, a belief in free will helps that out a lot. Oh yeah, for sure. Cause then if you, if you like achieve something, you know that it's based on something that I could, this could have been different. Like I could have made the wrong choices and not achieved this thing. Like I had to make these specific choices to pursue these specific values in this specific way to achieve this these great values and to think that it's just oh this was going to happen anyways it just it's such a blow to your self-esteem it just yeah for sure yeah i built that 
as opposed to Obama's, you didn't build that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, if it, it wasn't, uh, if your achievements weren't really your achievements because they're just a product of environmental factors or genetic factors, it wasn't really your free will that's um, to be credited, then, you know, who are you to um, resist when the government wants to seize your achievements? Yeah. <laughs> um, it wasn't really you. So what grounds do you have to um, put up a fight? Stand up for your yeah, own for rights. Sure. For sure, for sure. And yeah, I guess one, one thing, one thing I noticed people just like, um, I, I thought, I thought people had like this sort of passion for freedom. I thought this was like something very common until this whole Corona thing happened. And after arguing with people and seeing how people have responded to this, it's just like these, like most people are not, do not want their rights to be maintained. They're just, they want somebody to come in and protect them and to sort of be their, be their protector, I guess, sort of um, tell them what to do, tell them how to live their lives, tell them and just keep them safe. Like a sort of um, like a sort of uh, big brother government that sort of just, just controls you, says, tells you what to do, tells you how to stay safe. It keeps you safe, make sure that nothing bad happens to you. And in, in the process doesn't actually let you go and achieve your happiness and achieve what you want to do with your life. Yeah, I, I've wondered about this, like what the American reaction to the whole lockdown uh, orders says about the American spirits. Um, I mean, on the one hand, you might think, well, they're just, they're trying to be uh, reasonable about it and go by the scientific evidence. Um, but then you know there's there's got to be a certain limit to, to that mm -hmm. i mean if you're totally destroying people's lives for the sake of some small sets, subset of people mm -hmm. then you're basically asking some people to sacrifice for others yep it, it's no longer a a rational uh public policy decision it's mm -hmm. it's sacrificing people's lives um and it, so i think just because people are willing to put up with some lockdown doesn't necessarily imply that they're willing ready to just you know roll over and take anything mm -hmm. um but you know as it goes on and on and on you know it's it's more likely that if people continue to put up with it that it is a sign of um, lack of self-esteem and they're not asserting their own right to their own lives. They're allowing them, willing to allow themselves to be sacrificed for, for other people, for the greater good. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, yeah, maybe we're getting to that point now. Yeah. I mean, what really scares me is the people who will just say like, Oh well, we have we have to do this at all costs. We have to prevent the, the spread of Corona at all costs. Uh, sp prevent more deaths, no matter what the cost is. And then people who will just say, "Oh, you're concerned about the economy going down. You're 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 concerned about a few stock numbers going down." They they like mock people who are like, "Oh, the Dow Jones is down by one percent." They'll just mock mock the people who care about the economy. But really, what they're doing is they're replacing one crisis with another. They're replacing the coronavirus crisis with like an economic crisis which is 
like like corona would it would it's going to lead to a lot of deaths it's going to lead to a lot of suffering the economy is not this like minor thing that we can just completely overlook and disregard for the sake of preventing deaths by corona yeah yeah so you know as uh the saying goes maybe the cure is worse than the disease Mm -hmm. uh the cure being the lockdowns um yeah maybe the harm done by the lockdowns could actually result in more deaths um Mm. in the long run but it's it's hard to uh it's hard to prove that or calculate that because they could be indirect. Like one thing I yep. is just people's health. Like the, the more, the poorer you are, the less you can afford to eat healthily because, you know, maybe healthy food costs more than just, uh, you know, cheap dollar menu at McDonald's or wherever. Yeah. Um, but you know, if the economy crashes and you have massive poverty, and as a result, um, you have suicides at an increased mm-hmm. rate, but also just people can't eat as healthily. Well, mm-hmm. that could lead to diseases that could increase mm-hmm. chances of cancer, mm-hmm. which could, you know, uh, reduce people's lives by years or decades. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and- that's, that's a serious loss of life and shortening of life. Mm-hmm. But you can't trace that. You can't just say, oh, there's this mm-hmm. lockdown for... X number yep. of months and that led to this guy getting cancer 10 years down the line yeah that that, that doesn't that doesn't get the headlines like the headlines always going to be coronavirus kills a million people rather than three million people die in a decade due to the fact that they became poor and can't like it, that's 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 not what draws people's attention people are drawn to sort of direct consequences of things it's sort of it's sort of that uh that distinction between like the uh, seen and the unseen in economics um where like you can like see that oh the government built this project but you don't see like all the things that didn't get built by the fact that the government took that money and redirected it to other things it's the same same sort of principle here because you're like oh you see all these deaths but then you don't see what happens to or you see all these deaths that are the deaths and how they got reduced potentially but you don't see like how these other deaths over here got increased as directly yeah yeah exactly i was thinking the same thing uh the broken window fallacy, to use the uh, term from Henry Hazlitt's book. I don't know if he uses that phrase, but that's his example. You know, the hoodlum mm-hmm. breaks the window with throwing, throws yep. a rock through it. And then look at all the business it created. The guy has to buy a new window. So he uh, finances the, the glass maker. And then now the glass maker has more money and he can mm-hmm. buy something else. So isn't the way to create wealth just destroy things? <laughs> Um, yeah, but what about all the things that you could have used that money for instead of just getting them back mm-hmm. to the status quo that are now not being made? Uh, yep. You don't see that. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, in, in, in that case of the, of the, fa- of the broken window fallacy, like he would have preferred to spend his money on something that is more valuable to him than a new window. Like he, and then this sort of, it sort of misallocates the economy towards the glass makers rather than the people that he actually wants to buy from. And it just leads to all these economic problems. And it's so, it's, it's so complex for some people. Some people don't notice it because it's like, it's conceptual. It, it, it's not something that you see directly. Like you have to form the concept of, Oh, this person has values. And um, he, if, what would he do if he didn't spend his money on this? And you have to like think conceptually about all these things and think abstractly, but, I mean, 
we're, this is not like what we were taught to do for most of our lives. We're taught just think, think perceptually, put everything in its little category and don't integrate things. Just, yeah, just memorize and um, repeat. I guess that's kind of how we're taught in schools. Yeah. So it's basically uh, staying on the perceptual level mm -hmm. um, as opposed to rising to the, the conceptual level, the, the distinctively human level and mm -hmm. applying your powers as a rational animal. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's when you put it as the distinction between the seen and the unseen, I think that's, mm -hmm. that's really important. That's, it's kind of like the distinction between the perceptual and the conceptual. Mm -hmm. um, but the conceptual is the, is the distinctively human realm. It's al allows mm -hmm. us to integrate not just what we see immediately in front of us, but that with all the long range consequences of mm -hmm. what we see in front of us. And our lives are lived long range. We don't just live uh, in a snapshot at one moment. Uh, our lives are continuous through time, but the only way to be aware of that continuity is by choosing to focus and choosing to think. Yep. Um, choosing to live, uh, going back yeah. to uh, our discussion. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, yeah, that's, that's ultimately like how we live. That's how we live by being conceptual. Like that's what makes humans better than the animals. That's what makes the animals sort of inferior in that sense. That's why we have iPhones and skyscrapers and computers and all, all these different things. Like, because we are conceptual, we think long range and figure these things out. Um, unlike the animals. Yeah, we're not still cavemen, you know, doing the same thing generation after generation. We can make mm -hmm. progress, which, yeah. you know, that's, which the other animals can't. They're just stuck on the perceptual level. Um, mm -hmm. No fault to them, because that's all they can do. But yeah, yeah we can do better and we should, we should do better. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. Also, I guess sort of an sort of an unrelated topic. I know you went through the Objectivist Academic Center, and I've been considering that, but I don't know if that's like sort of worth the money or sort of like worth if I would be able to get much as much out of that as I would like to it, or if I or if I should like sort of. I guess what was your experience with that? Uh, well, I, I, uh, so I was in it for four years in their undergraduate program. It's a three-year program mm -hmm. now for the undergraduates. Mm -hmm. um, but back when I was in it, it was a four-year program. Uh, and they also had graduate program after that, but that's also morphed over the years. And I went through some years of the graduate program too. But so if you're considering the undergraduate program, um, I guess, my experience was different than many people's in that I had already heard basically all of the courses by Leonard Peikoff before I ever started the OAC. Um, so I don't think I got as much out of it as a lot of students because some of the courses were entirely based on Leonard Peikoff's courses, which I think are excellent courses. Yeah. Like his understanding objectivism, which actually is a book now. It's uh, it was, hadn't yet been turned into a book when I had uh, uh, gone through, um, but I had heard the course, his course, Objectivism Through Induction, The Art of Thinking, Judging, mm -hmm. Feeling, and Not Being Moralistic, Objective Communication, 
history of philosophy, all of those uh -huh. were, were part of the curriculum, although there ended up not being a test for the history of philosophy, but it was part of the original idea for the program. And I had, I had heard of all, all of those, I think some of them multiple times. Mm -hmm. um, and that stuff was groundbreaking for me when I first heard it. But when I was going through the OEC, it was more just like, okay, I'm, uh, this is a refresher. Um, whereas for most students, I think it was their first time hearing that stuff because all that stuff is free online now. Yeah. Um, and anybody can hear it, I, but it was not like that when I was going through, you had to pay hundreds mm -hmm. and hundreds of dollars for these courses. Yeah. And I did that because I really wanted to hear them, uh, you know, as soon as I could. Um, so when I was going through college undergraduate, <clears throat> I heard all the courses. Um, and then when I got to the OAC, it was like, okay, well, this is mostly a refresher. Mm. Now, not all the courses were like that. It's somewhere like there was an introduction to philosophy course. Um, but I already got a bachelor's degree in philosophy by that oh, time. Oh yeah. So I was actually exempt from that uh, course. And there was also an intro to logic course, but I had already taken intro logic mm. in undergraduate philosophy. So I didn't have to take that, at least not most of it. There was a section on uh, induction, which I did take. Um, and I think most of the students who are going through the OEC undergraduate program, they're simultaneously uh, undergraduates uh, in college. So, mm. um, I was kind of in an unusual situation. I had already gotten a lot of the contents of the OAC before I entered the OAC. Hmm. So it wasn't as like um, groundbreaking or like life altering as I think it was for many other students. Um, and, you know, I don't know if that's more the case these days where a lot of these courses you can get online for free. They're not, you know, you don't have hmm. to pay hundreds of dollars for them. So a lot of the value you can you can get very easily, but there there is um, an instructor element which is absent from just when you're studying things on your own. So you when you go through the OAC, you do get feedback from the instructors. At the time, it was only Ankar and uh, one or two others who are uh, no longer involved with the OAC. Um, but now there's there's uh, I think they have several instructors on carbon Bayer, Aaron Smith. Um, I don't know if Elon Giorno is still teaching or Keith Lockich and hmm. you'll get individualized feedback from them on assignments. And that's valuable. Um, because it's one thing to just listen to a lecture course. It's another thing to you know, put your knowledge to the test and actually um, have to make your thinking objective in the mind independent sense uh, of putting your thoughts on paper, having to express yourself clearly and persuasively. And then um, someone can evaluate that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's taking it to another level um, than just absorbing stuff by listening to it. Um, <clears throat> so I think that, that is valuable and i did get value out of that as i was going through the oac the, the instructor feedback there were some tutorials one-on-one -on -one tutorials i had a couple of those with Ankar. i don't know if they're still doing that <clears throat> um, they're extremely busy um, but in any case 
that is one advantage of going through the RAC is that you get this instructor feedback, individualized mm -hmm. feedback on your work, uh, which you wouldn't otherwise get. Um, another thing to consider is auditing. So um, they have an audit option now, um, which you might want to consider if you're just not sure if mm -hmm. you want to sign up as a full-time student or um, you just don't have time to be a full-time student, um, given what else other values you have to pursue, uh, you can do auditing, which is paid. You have to pay for it. Um, if you're a student, I think you can apply for scholarships. Yeah. What is the auditing? Work. What is auditing? It's basically like a student minus the grading. So you can sit uh, in uh, on the classes. And I, I think they might even allow you to participate in classes like online classes mm -hmm. um but you're not getting individualized feedback on assignments on writing assignments or tests uh, um but at least you get the live experience uh or you know you can listen to it on recordings um yeah. so you get some of the value some additional value that way but um you just wouldn't be getting the grading or the individualized feedback. Hmm. I mean, I, yeah. I guess you could still do the assignments on your own, but they wouldn't be spending the time and resources on grading you and giving you feedback. Yeah. So I think, I guess that would sort of be, if I were to do that, that would sort of be what the value would, for me would be. Cause I'm already sort of like watching courses, reading books um, and like, like doing that sort of like making it objective by like creating content, writing stuff down with like my channel and my like independent study. So I guess the value that I could get out of that would be like sort of um, having people to look at what I do and tell me if I'm doing it right or not. And I guess sort of that's what YouTube comments are for, but obviously the YouTube comments are not as intelligent as like as Ankar or someone else that would be in, would be evaluating me. So yeah, that makes sense. I guess if that, I will definitely consider that with that in mind. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, that in, in, uh, expert feedback is valuable. And it also, mm -hmm. also could be valuable for giving you a kind of credential. Um, I mean, depending on what your goals are in life, you might, might find it valuable. Like if you have a third party credentialing, I mean, it's kind of like mm. you get a degree from a college and part of the value of that is it makes objective to other people who don't know you from Adam that mm -hmm. you've, you've got some kind of something to prove that you've uh, reached some level of understanding. So if you want to go on to be, if, if your goal was to be an objectivist intellectual, well, part of the way of demonstrating that you've actually mastered the ideas is to go through this program and do well in it. Um, so it, it, I think it's a way of making objective to other people that mm -hmm. you've reached a certain level of understanding. Yeah. And maybe you could get that anyway, um, mm -hmm. but it's- I guess, I guess for me, for if I wanted to do that, I would just like sort of point to my YouTube channel or say, look at this and you can judge it based off that rather than, I guess a potential could be helpful though in the sense that like, yeah, this was independently judged by these intellectuals who we already know are good and good at what they do. And then they've said that, yeah, you passed this course or you have this credential. So that, that could also be helpful in helping other people judge you. Yeah, it's, it's kind of an independence um, 
evaluation. Um, I mean, it's, yeah, so it's one thing to say, well, I've got this YouTube channel, but okay, um, there's millions of people who have YouTube channels. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, within objectivism, not, uh, not millions, but lots of objectivists, uh, I think, have YouTube channels. So this would be a mm -hmm. way to distinguish yourself if, you know, if that were a value to yeah. you, uh, which it might be. It also might accelerate your understanding. So even if you could get to a certain level of understanding on your own, it might take you longer mm -hmm. to get there. Um, then if you have experts to to guide you along so mm. so that's another thing in addition to getting credentials that say you know you reached a certain mm. level you might get to that level faster than you otherwise would mm -hmm. yeah for sure it would be nice to like be able to like ask questions of these type of people and like try to like work through some of these issues like yeah if, if it'd be awesome just to have like Leonard Peikoff's email or something so that it like, oh, I have this question on objectivism. Like, why, why did you, or what, what did you mean in, like this, the question that we were talking about earlier, what did you mean by you can't choose to focus or there's no why when it comes to focus? And then what do you mean by later when you have this similar primary choice of life? And like, I could just ask this question and he could respond and we could talk about it, but it, yeah, it'd be, it'd be nice, but that's not, I guess my reality right now. I just have to sort of reach out to other people grasping with this question and sort of grasp at it as well. Yeah. Well, it's not my reality either. <laughs> yeah. Well, with, with someone like Leonard Peikoff, I don't think he's really active in philosophy. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, these days, at least not to the point where he would be, you know, just taking questions like that from people. And he's, he's not one of the OEC instructors anymore. Oh, yeah. Um, so yeah, you wouldn't be able to ask him. I don't think, I mean, you can email him and, Maybe he'll reply. I, I kind of doubt he would reply to that kind of question, but mm -hmm. um, yeah, but you could deal with ARI's instructors at least uh, to mm -hmm. some extent. I mean, they're busy too, but you would have more access to them. You, you might also consider, um, I don't know if you're on HBL, Harry Benzwanger's uh, mm -hmm. list or web forum, but mm -hmm. you could raise this kind of question on HBL and I'm sure some people would be... Um, game for for discussing this issue and all kinds of issues not mm -hmm. not all of them are going to be experts or you know professional philosophers mm -hmm. um but some of them might be harry you know harry benzwanger might engage on a question like this mm -hmm. so i think that's hbl is another good resource which i use quite a bit myself not always posting but i, I read it regularly and sometimes i mm -hmm. post yeah, I like to read the like math math ones on there. I'm, oh, I'm reading through the mathematical mysticism one. Yeah, I've I'm on there, but I don't like I haven't posted anything or asked any questions yet. Yeah. Yeah, I found I found lately that um, I've been very interested in like the mathematical application of objectivism. Um, I've watched some of like Pat Corvini's lectures on this sort of stuff, and I bought. Robert Knapp's book and I've been reading through the Harry Binswinger stuff. I think, I think he's going to release like a book soon on something related to that, but I, I have no idea. That's, I think James Elliot, Elias told me that, that he was saying something about that, but I have no idea. Yeah. He's um, I just remember that he said he's putting together a lot of his 
posts or articles from across the years and he's assembling mm -hmm. them into a book and I, I don't know if he's gonna like to what extent he's gonna edit that or just pretty much leave yeah. it as the original posts or maybe he'll just write like an introduction to it I, i'm not sure but mm -hmm. yeah that is a project in the works for him I, I don't know when it's supposed to come out yeah i mean yeah that's exciting um more more books are better <laughs> I, I have a lot of stuff to read. I'm almost done with ITOE though, which is nice. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a really important one. Are you reading the you when you say you're almost done, do you mean the uh you know the the eight chapters? Or you mean the appendix? There's the long the appendix, the appendix. I finished the eight chapters a okay. while ago. I'm like mostly almost done with the appendix. I try to read ten pages a day and I think I have like three days left of reading, so Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's exciting uh, good stuff. Uh, there was, I took a seminar on that many years ago with Harry Benzwanger. We went through the entire thing, including the appendix. Mm. I mean, not all of it in equal detail, but we got pretty in depth into it, and that was that was a valuable experience. Hmm. Yeah, for sure. I'm trying to think if I have anything else I wanted to talk about, but. Yeah, do you have anything else you wanted to talk about? I think we've gotten like almost two and a half hours, so. Uh, let's see. Um, no, I don't, I don't think on this call, I mean, there, maybe there's other topics we could discuss another time, um, but we kind of had a theme here for this call on life yeah, and happiness. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. I think we, we covered a lot of good ground with that. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, uh, to, to call it a call. Uh, all right, for sure. Let's, let's call the call. <laughs> all right. Yeah. All right. So I'll just do a closing thing and yeah. All right. So thank you all for watching and I hope to see you all in the next video. Peace.